If a small flock of cartoon bluebirds didn't help you get dressed this morning, that just means you haven't yet listened to Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor. No, the black dress slacks, please. Thank you. And now, Jim Hill. Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this show on Friday, March 22nd, which means that we're a week out from the release of Tim Burton's live-action reimagining of Dumbo. We're going to have some audio on that from the second half of today's show uh, that Mr. Taylor collected at the Dumbo Junket, but first, some not-so-wonderful news. First of all, Drew, did you ever actually get to see Wonder Park? I didn't. I was invited to the premiere, and the premiere was the same day as the ju- Dumbo Junket. So, well, I mean, once again, Disney cuts cuts it off at the knees. But yeah, did you did you end up seeing? No, it? It, you gotta love Disney. This is that wonderful story about how when 20th Century Fox was putting out Anastasia, how Disney deliberately put the Little Mermaid back in theaters for you know like only yes. 14 days, and it's like coincidentally the first two weeks that Anastasia is out in theaters. So, it's a magic kingdom filled with people with really short knives so it wasn't like disney had to work all that hard to kneecap wonder park i'm um, you know again been out in theaters for a week now to date it's only earned 20 million dollars during its domestic run which when you're a film that had a budget of 100 million dollars that's not a good thing yeah did you see that it went into theaters without a director credit? Yeah, but my understanding is they literally went around the entire crew. And it's like, you know, I mean, or excuse me, the senior yeah. story do, people. Do you want it? Do you want it? Do you want and, it? And, and they even didn't go the Alan Smithy route? That's just startling. On the other hand, this wasn't just a movie, folks. This was also an animated series, they say, viewing on Nickelodeon later this year. And Casey Leonard, the gentleman who's the supervising producer of the Wonder Park animated series, I kind of love Casey's attitude. It's just sort of like, doesn't matter what the movie's doing, wait till you see what we're doing with the television series. And he get the quote I've got here is like, it's really exciting to inherit this great group of characters in a giant amusement park to tell stories in. The CG department and Nick is doing really exciting cutting-edge work that will truly bridge the gap between TV and feature-quality animation. It's quite an honor to be along for the ride. Well, I think it's interesting that it is another animated feature this year that has sort of not done what they thought it was going to mm-hmm. do. Between Lego Movie 2, which has looked like, you know, we've talked about will only end up making about half of what the first one mm-hmm. did, to even How to Train Your Dragon 3, which was perceived as a hit, but is still the lowest grossing movie in the trilogy. So I wonder what what is going on exactly out there and why these movies aren't connecting with people more. When you talk with folks about grosses these days, I mean, you know, just one of these things where North America, yeah, 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 wonderful market. But China, oh my God. It's all about the international gross and what you can do with the merch over there or for that matter, I think we talked on the last show about the Beijing Universal Park that uh, may be swapping out its Madagascar area for a uh, How to Train Your Dragons area. And I guess while we're talking business, we, we have to talk about 
Earlier this week, Disney finally finished its $71.4 billion acquisition of 20th Century Fox. You know, that little that little deal. Day two of the acquisition. A lot of people in the industry were startled because there's a great redundancy between the two studios in regard to marketing and very, you know, department heads and that sort of thing. But they started handing out pink slips on, on day one. There were, what, a dozen top executives on the film side of 20th Century Fox, and then they doubled down and actually shuttered the Fox 2000 label. Yeah. The separation packages, that sort of thing, are so it's said to be very generous. Some people are getting like nine months of full salary and benefits and that sort of thing. And that they were Fox employees who were genuinely ticked off because I guess the letter that went out on day one from HR pointed out that your passes to get into Disneyland probably won't be available till late 2019, which, you know, (laughs) I wanted to get into Galaxy's Edge. It's like, well, you're going to have to wait. But given kind of the pushback that Disney got that day, before close of business on March 21st, they issued the org chart. These are the people who are still in charge of, of various things. And you know, in the middle of the pile here is a note about Fox Animation, which it's said right. that what Fox Animation, including Blue Sky Studio, will continue to be led by co-presidents Andrea Melora and uh, Robert Beard. Variety reported back in December of last year that Blue Sky Animation Studios was expected to complete two films that were far enough along in production that, you know, it just made sense to, to chug ahead with those. And then after that... It was kind of a question of what happens next. Okay, so we know one of these films. We know Spies in Disguise. Yes, the very bizarre spy movie where Will Smith is turned into a pigeon. Yes. Troy Quain, he's the director and production designer, Michael Knapp. And it's a 1960s spy movie, but set in a modern era. So it's it's kind of a off-kilter version of Washington, D.C., and got pushed April. Now it's not opening till September 13th. Normally, that's kind of a sniff test moment, you know, when you keep kicking the can down the road. Right. But on the other hand, what complicates this situation is the two people who are voicing the leads in this thing, Will Smith and Tom Holland. And Disney, the notion is, look, we're going to fully support this thing, uh, largely because we don't need Will Smith upset when it comes time to do the junkets for, well, not necessarily the theatrical lease of the live-action Aladdin, but for the Blu-ray DVD, you know, I mean, they need him to go, go right. back on Ellen, they need him to go back on Good Morning America and that sort of thing. And, and likewise, Tom Holland, where it's like, you know, you want that guy happy, you know, because he's got to go out and push Far From Home, which, yes, is being released by Sony, but it's also a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie, and more to the point, it's the very first one after Endgame, so it's kind of important that it... No pressure. No pressure. Yeah. By the way, did yeah. you see that Kevin Feige has announced that they're dropping the whole phase thing for the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe? No, and it's interesting because there's so much speculation that spa- Phase 4, which is the upcoming phase, will be the Fantastic Four, mm-hmm. which just seems too perfect to totally let oh, I, drop, I agree. by the way. I agree, said. but supposedly from this point forward, the 22 films from the original Iron Man in 2008 to Endgame, the folks at Marvel would now like us to refer to that as the Infinity Saga. Oh, I did see that, yeah. I thought that was very stupid, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, all right. <laughs> the Infinity Saga. Okay, right, well, guys. Cool. Well, you know, when when you're sitting there in a chair made entirely out of a hundred dollar bills, you know, it's that's you know, true. It's, that's true. I, I came up with an idea. Absolutely, Mr. Feige. That's that's wonderful. <laughs> that's great. I thought it was telling that. I mean, you saw those photos of the Walt Disney Company homepage, mm-hmm. right? Like right at the Oh yeah, yeah. And there was there was a Simpsons character. Mm-hmm. I think Bart was on yeah. there. You know, there were various uh, rugby players and whatnot, mm-hmm. and then no blue sky at all, uh, um, which I thought was very telling. Also, no, like, Anastasia or Bob's Burgers, which that's another movie that's in the works right now at Fox Animation is the Bob's Burgers movie that was supposed to come out in 2021. So do we have any idea what the second blue sky movie is? Supposedly, they've got 10 different films at various stages of the development. But the one that seems to be furthest along and more to the point has, you know, the most market value is Rio 3. I was talking with, with friends at Disney and it's like, okay, so what's going to happen here? He said, well, we don't know yet. It's entirely possible that Rio 3 might end up going out through Disney Plus, which in theory, that will be a big deal. You know, the whole notion of throw the might of the company behind it and it'll get pushed out to the streaming subscription service and just as much attention as it for theatrical release. But the more intriguing thing for me was, was talking with friends in Imagineering and they that they are under tremendous pressure because of the seventy one point four billion dollar acquisition. It's like look Oh yeah. Do you have any updates on Ice Age taking over the Dinoland USA? <laughs> a friend of mine who has access to quote unquote the war room First of all, he, he was in there and he said they have one whiteboard that is just filled with possible Fox properties to bring into the parks. And then there'll be something circled on the whiteboard, for example, the 1960s Planet of the Apes movies and Fantastic Voyage. Oh, my God. That would be so great. But at the same time, there were arrows connecting to weird little thoughts like sci-fi city the proposed redo of tokyo disneyland's tomorrowland section this was after disney sky kind of got shuttered or at least put on the back well no there was this line connecting sci-fi city and the 1960s planet of the apes movies in fantastic voyage with the notion of what if we were to take you know these sci-fi properties these retro sci-fi properties that fox had done back in the day and found a way to bring them into the park. And understanding that some of the stuff would be for the void. It's a very bizarre situation right now. And a lot of it is very fluid. And a lot of it is just throwing stuff against the wall and seeing what sticks. Which brings us back to Rio 3. The up the Great Bird Adventure show that replaced uh, Disney's Animal Kingdom's opening day bird show. Uh, yeah, I suffered <laughs> through that with you yes. last year. All right. And it just... But the, Good <laughs> Lord. But here's the thing. In order to, you know, again, this is the one that's themed around Pete Doctor's Up. What's happening is, was so poorly received, they had to do a rewrite in August to try to make it more entertaining. However, behind the scenes, in order to get the birds on stage comfortable with the giant walk-around characters of Doug and Russell, there are cast members who feed, literally feed the birds backstage in the costumes. And... The problem is that the birds are smart enough, evidently, to realize that the people who are in the costumes aren't necessarily the same performers they're working with on stage. 
And so they're just not getting consistent show out of these folks because it's like, you're not the same guy you I worked with. I mean, yes, you're wearing the, <laughs> the Russell costume, but I know from your smell or I know from your body movements. So this is this has been kind of a an ongoing disaster. And so there have been discussions of, okay, well, what do we do? How do we fix this show? And one of the ideas that evidently is being floated is the notion of going to a version of the show where instead of having on stage celebrity animation guests like Russell and, and Doug from Up, you go the other way. You put two giant screens up on either side of the stage and you have Blue and Jewel from the Rio movies, the characters that Jesse Eisenberg and uh, Anne Hathaway voiced. And you have them as the new host of the show. And it's like, I guess they've been talking with the folks who handled the animals at Animal Kingdom Park. And they love this idea because it's just sort of like the on-screen stuff won't disturb the birds. They'll settle better into their routines and performing. Likewise, they can cut away from the animation and use footage of these actual animals in the wild, which, of course... You know, given that we've just required National Geographic, we have access to all this amazing footage, and it just seems like a win-win. But at the same time, there's an awful lot of money that's already been spent on Up the Great Bird Adventure. and You would never tell by looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> you are so kind. <laughs> you know, so. And I guess what's not helping the situation is that the Kevin, the walk around Kevin, the giant bird that's debuted back in February, huge success, enormous success. And so it's that bird kicks ass. And I saw they were selling little plushes of Kevin now, too. Or maybe it's the babies or whatever. But that's been a huge success where the show has been just kind of a disaster. So it's, it's kind of a how do we do this? And more to the point, particularly with Pete Doctor is the new you know, head of creative for Pixar and the guy who's coming to look at stuff in the parks. It's like, how do we go? By the way, the show based on your stuff sucks, but we want to do this Rio thing. So, well, but didn't we say that he was he was not as much of a sycophant? This is true. In terms this of, is true. Uh, having his ego fed for park purposes, like our dearly dearly departed Lasseter yeah, was. But it's hard when you've been trained to do that, to, to sort of try to sculpt the show to when the new boss's tastes or the characters that they created, the notion of, oh, wait a minute. You, oh, oh, you actually care about the shows in the park. Wait a minute. <laughs> Hang on. Get her. My mistake. My, my, my mistake. mistake. All right. Oh, oh and, and speaking of mistakes, um, uh, well, not a mistake. There's somebody reached out on Twitter. You, you've got that to a tweet. Yes, I, I, uh, yes, Spence yep. on Twitter reached out and said, Hi, guys, quick animation question for you. Since Blue Sky Studios made the Peanuts movie, and now Blue Sky is owned by Disney, does N- Disney now have the film rights to the Peanuts? And I said, no, basically. But you have a much more elaborate explanation of this, correct? In a way, Disney does have the rights to Peanuts. I mean, back... In 2001, ABC acquired the rights to all of the Peanut specials that had previously aired on CBS for 35 years. They start running them as part of ABC's holiday programming. It's a huge success, which is why in August of 2010, the company extends this deal. So they get another five years, and by December of 2013, they're taking no chances. Disney does a a preemptive thing, and they extend the deal out to 2020. The problem is that prior to this 
Fox had acquired the rights to do the Peanuts film. They had acquired the rights back in 2007, and it took them eight years to come up with a good, solid story and an art style, and it worked. But it was a one-off. It was They had the rights to make a single movie, and Gene Schultz, who's been writing Herd on the family business since Charles passed away in February of 2000, basically said, well, look, the first one took eight years, so, you know, maybe in another eight years we'll talk about doing another one. So as far as the Schultz company was concerned, there was no urgency, but things have changed over the past 18 months or thereabouts. May of 2017, the Peanuts brand gets sold outright to DHX Media for $345 million. Uh, Mind you, the the Schultz family retains a 20% stake, but they don't really get to do much beyond consulting. THX Media are the people who own the Teletubbies, Drew. Oh, jeez. So the nightmare factory is what you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. Now, we jump ahead a a year. uh, May 14, 2018. Sony Music Entertainment basically buys half of the peanuts company from dhx media they pay them 185 million dollars they get 49 percent of the 80 percent that dhx owns but that's only in japan correct that's where it gets really interesting because in december of last year apple lands the rights to start doing brand new peanuts stuff series specials and it was described at the time as a highly competitive bidding situation and supposedly the big who was going head to head with apple was disney and again with with the thoughts of if we get the rights to these characters we're in a better situation where we complete the fox acquisition to you know circle back around to the family and see if we can expedite going forward with a sequel film likewise you know retaining the rights to show all these specials on abc and the rights to all these specials goes away in 2020 i'm sure i'm sure it'll be a peaceful transition of power uh in 2020 remember that it's it's sony music entertainment and now disney has a working relationship with sony because of the Marvel Spider-Man thing with with Spider-Man, you know, and it's just what I heard from the folks at Disney is like, okay, this isn't done yet. We're still working on this. We're still trying to see because Disney has sort of a relationship with Apple and sort of a relationship with Sony. And so they're going to do what they can to retain at least the television rights. And they would, in fact, like to go forward but apple's got its own streaming stuff yeah i mean they're about to announce their slate on monday so get ready for that long story short spence it's a complicated situation lots of moving parts talking with friends at disney the fear was that you know are you just acquiring the peanuts characters to do what you're doing with them with the muppets to sort of have them and then not know what to do with them you know, whereas a, an Apple could really put gas in the tank and do something interesting here. And one of the reasons Sony Music went after them is Japanese-based company, and the peanuts are still huge in Japan. Yeah. Lots of information. None of it seems definitive. Let's follow Drew's suggestion here and see what what the slate for Apple features. And Yeah. And while we're talking about complicated situations... 
the Toy Story 4 trailer dropped <laughs> earlier this week. And right. Do we start with the straight numbers thing? Yeah, I can I can provide those, sure. So in the past three days since the trailer has been online, it's been mm-hmm. viewed 28 million times on YouTube, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. So by comparison, Frozen 2, the trailer was viewed 116.4 million times, mm-hmm. and that was just in its first 24 hours. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting because the interest seemingly is not as intense as it is for Frozen 2. Mm-hmm. I think there might be some confusion since it seemed like three was the last one. Mm-hmm. But what do you? What did you think of the trailer? I just felt like a I have been here before, and I think part of that that problem is the two Toy Story holiday specials. I mean, especially the yes, I was going to say that it, it didn't feel sort of like one of those specials. Yeah, I mean, especially the. Toy Story of Terror mm-hmm. and Disney Publishing was nice enough to send me a galley of the book that'll be released after Toy Story 4 where where Forky is happy and accepted his role in the world and in fact it's, it's this wonderful story of a bunch of little kids making crafts and then they all go out to recess and then all of these newly made toys, like a puppet that used to be a lunch bag, are freaking out. It's like, I'm a lunch bag. I, I should have a sandwich in me. And and Forky goes around the room and explains to all of the other toys that, no, you were, you're about to embark on this huge, wonderful adventure because a little kid loves you. A little kid loves you right. so much that they made you and brought you into the world. So there's a place where this story is going to land, and it's going to be very sweet, but... You know, when I look at, like, the Gabby Gabby character that they show in the the trailer, that I guess that's, what, Christina Hendricks from Mad yes, Men? Yes, that's is, right. Is, yeah, she's the big man. Yeah, and it's just sort of like, really? Because didn't we have Stinky Pete and Lotso pretty much do the same thing? I mean, <laughs> I don't want to be that jerk. I don't want to be a guy who's judging two hours plus of movie on two minutes of trailer, but cutting a trailer is an art form. Yes. If you do it right, you whet an appetite, and people are like, oh, I have to see that movie. If you go around online now, there's a lot of people, frankly, who are looking at this trailer and going, what? Yeah, it seemed like they didn't have a lot of footage to choose from, which is evident, too, because a lot of the scenes had dialogue seemingly from other scenes that were placed into that shot where you could see their mouth moving, and it was not the dialogue that was being read on screen. Mm. So I wonder what, I mean, it could just be a simple matter of there's just not enough animation finished yet, but I will be attending the long lead day for the movie next month. And uh, I'm sure we'll bring back many stories uh, about where the movie is and what it is and all that. You know what this reminds me of? There's a a famous story, the Van Helsing movie, the, the Hugh Jackman thing that Universal did middle 2000s. You know, and the whole notion was we're going to take the universal monsters and make them, you know, exciting for today's generation. And we've got, you know, a huge star, huge Jackman leading this franchise. And it's going to be a huge series of films. And they actually did a presentation to the folks who worked at uh, Universal Creative. And John Murdy, the gentleman who's in charge of doing the new ride shows and attractions for Hollywood, 
the meeting ends and Summers feels that it's gone really well and then as they're headed out the door John Murdy sort of directs him to sit down again and it's like well, what's this about and it's like look you have one chance to do this <laughs> don't screw it up because we've been waiting to bring these characters back into the park we've been waiting for the opportunity to, to bring these characters that we love back and don't screw it up and it's, all I can think of is when I look at the trailer for Toy Story 4 and I no disrespect for Josh Cooley who I, I love his this early work but it's like please don't screw this up I mean because if you think about how right. well Toy Story 3 landed again I remember being concerned when they were doing Toy Story 3 because Toy Story 2 had done you know the impossible it had you know it had done the Godfather part 2 it had improved and deepened and made that world better and right. 3 managed to pull it off as well and it just I just there's a part of me looking at this stuff and it's like oh god don't let this be the one too many trips back to the well where we had an idea for a wonderful thing to sell things. Right. Right now, at the Disney stores around the country, the fourth Saturday of every month, they put out a brand new selection of Toy Story merch that, you know, some of it... Oh, this is the, the Road to Toy Story 4 promotion. There we thing. go. Yeah. All right, we'll tell you what. Why don't we, we take a quick break, and then when we get back, let's talk about the great stories that you got at the Dumbo Junket. And we're back. While we're recording this on the 22nd, this show will go live online on March 26th. And what's interesting about uh, the 26th is in Disney history, back in 1990, this was the day that Under the Sea took, uh, won Best Song at the 1968 Academy Awards. And should have been a happy moment for Alan Menken because again he didn't take home just one Academy Award for that song he took home a second one for the score to The Little right. Mermaid but he's backstage at the Academy Awards and Howard comes up to you know Howard Ashman his collaborator on the, the all the stuff for The Little Mermaid and says okay uh, this is great but we need to have a serious talk so, you know, he walks out of the, the Dorothy Chandler and does all of the parties and is spiraling because it's like, oh, my God, Howard doesn't want to work with me anymore. What is this all about? And it's only days later when the two of them get back to New York and they meet at, at Mencken's Westchester County Farm that Ashman drops the bomb and reveals that he's been diagnosed with HIV. And back then, this was a death sentence. In fact, we lost... Howard in less than a year after that you know Howard passed away uh, May 14th 1991 I'm bringing this up because you and I have talked about Don Hahn's Howard documentary yes which I'm desperate to see have you no seen it? this is the thing I mean if I had known I mean they launched it last year at Tribeca and then there's this like this long lag and then it shows up at the Aspen Film Festival and the, the Heartland International Festival and it's the CTN event out in Burbank. I can't believe I missed that. I mean, I should have, I could have walked to it, you know. Waking Sleeping Beauty got a, a decent run and we got a Blu-ray and a DVD and I just, I wonder what the deal is with with Howard. Why, why it just, it seems to have sunk without a trace because it sounds absolutely fascinating i mean han 
unearthed footage that nobody had seen. Evidently in 1988, he's got video in this thing of Ashman on stage at the the 92nd Street Y. You know how they do those great creative discussions there? They Oh, yeah. I've been doing I've been doing a few of them. Oh, yeah. they're amazing. All right, but he's on stage talking about, you know, I don't think live action musicals are you know, Hollywood's behind those now, but I think we can do stuff with animation. And the moderator on stage goes, "Oh, can you talk a little bit about your future plans?" And he just sort of kind of hems and haws and deflects the question, moves on, and the thing is that Don found out that this footage was shot on the day that Howard found out that he had AIDS. Wow. I gotta see this movie. Somebody, yeah. somewhere, I guess it's gotta surface again at some point. Yeah, I mean, he was he was just as, as intrinsic a part of those movies' successes as any any storyteller or director or animator. I, I firmly believe that. That's what's killing me. I'm sitting here reading all these reviews, trying to get a sense of what the film is, and the, there's this wonderful moment where evidently Katzenberg goes to, to Ashman and is like, all right, you know, that, that part of your world song, it's slowing down the movie and it has to go. And, and, and Ashman turns and Katzenberg is like, over my dead body. I mean, I gotta see this stuff. I gotta, I gotta see this movie. Disney Plus, perhaps? Here's hoping, here's hoping, but yeah. that's 88. Think of all the changes that happened just prior to this period. And one of the folks who was there to watch a lot of these change was Rick Heinrich. Yeah. You got to talk with him at the Dumbo live action redo junket, but he, he talked about his time with Tim, right? Or the, the early, early days? Oh, yeah. And, yeah. And, and what I didn't even think about going into this interview was that he was talking about how so many of the nine old men were still at Disney when they got there. So uh, first, what was your sort of relationship with the original film? Uh, well, as you probably know, um, Tim and I were both at Disney in the 80s, early 80s. Yes. And, you know, I saw it as a kid. It, it registered deeply as, a, as a, a very beautiful and emotional film for me as a kid. And it was uh, when I got to Disney that I was really able to explore um, uh, with some of the people who, who uh, actually were around at the time. Yeah. They were still, some of them still. Yeah, Joe busy. Grant was still there, yeah. right? Yeah, uh, Joe Grant, I mean, you know, Eric Larson, all, all yeah. the, uh, you know, uh, several of the nine old men. War Kimball was still around. Right. So it was there was a kind of a connection to be made with the people that were responsible for doing the film in the first place. And um, just sort of getting a sense of them and a sense of the new people who were coming in at that time, because this was a time of people like Tim and and Lassiter and, and Henry Selleck and Brad Bird, all these great people were coming in from the early years of CalArts into the system at Disney and sort of making their mark early on, starting to make that mark early on. But we were all sort of absorbing the, the history of it at the time and uh, loved the film early on. The idea of um, remaking it was, has never been even remotely in my mind. <laughs> and uh, I hate the word remake anyway, but one of the things that, uh, and, and cut in if, you, if I'm going too long. No, here, but no. <laughs> one, of, one of the things that, um, that they are doing now, as you know, is, uh, is redoing these old titles, the golden classics at Disney. And the reason to do it, I think, for all of us is really to take it some, take, evolve it and develop it and, and somehow try to uh, get back into the, the headspace that the original creators were um, getting in the uh, at the time when they first were doing the film and see where you could take it from there 
Dumbo is a very simple story. And originally, I'm sure if you know the history of it, it yeah. was like a roll book or something yeah. like that. But from the beginning, it was all about a misfit of some kind. And that, and that misfit finding, uh, both being rejected and sort of finding its place in, in the world. Right. Uh, allowing his true talent to emerge. So Tim's the right director for this. You know, those are themes that definitely resonate with him. And the hallmark of everything I've done with Tim has been, you know, an expressionistic visual style. Have you seen the film? Yes, I saw last time. You've had done something I haven't done. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's very good. So, yeah. Good. What a relief. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, a, a, a very expressionistic visual style. But as so often happens when I work with Tim, he kind of has a shorthand mm-hmm. style of communicating, both visually using sketches, very quick sketches that he does, and uh, also some words that he uses. <laughs> But really, he's trying to put across a sense of feeling, which is really hard to put into words. Um, and I've been working with Tim for so long, almost 40 years now, that you just get enough to, to sort of open up the whole concept of what you're doing and, and explore it deeply. And then Tim's very involved then in with distilling that into his vision of what it wants to be. Right. Well, I was going to ask you, there's sort of some neat Easter eggs in this that I noticed that the werewolf in the nightmare, whatever, the the haunted house looks just like the, uh, is dressed just like the werewolf from Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, and I was wondering if there are any other Easter eggs. I mean, it looks like you looked at yeah. classic Disneyland for Dreamland and things like that. I was wondering if you could yes. share any of that stuff. Well, what was fabulous about Dumbo was not just digging deep into the period but digging deep into the whole concept of circuses. And, you know, before there was cinema, there were circuses. And the, the idea of bringing the exotic uh, stories and images and myths and exotically wild animals to, to the, the boonies, uh, bringing the rest of the world to, you know, the common man was very much what circuses were all about in this period. And so diving into that, that whole period and extracting from it what we needed so that there was enough of a sense of history and period. Although Tim's not really particularly driven by historical accuracy. So once we had that sort of playing field to work within, the um, collaboration really is about pulling things together that kind of go together and then shaping that. Right. Uh, So for instance, uh, Dreamland itself, there was a Dreamland in Coney Island. Uh, burned down in 1911. We got deeply into that to see what that was like. And it was just clear from early on that there was, that what we were looking for a, much more of a sort of a Kansas-Oz kind of contrast between the Medici Circus heartland and the dreamland sort of feel. And with those two um, diverging elements to, to contrast with each other. It really meant kind of pushing and stylizing the dreamland aspect of it and simplifying and, and making sure that the sort of heartland, the Kansas, the, the Midwest, the common man's abode felt uh, of the Medici Circus. So felt that it was a, um, that it resonates emotionally with the viewer. Uh, whereas dreamland is, is just a, a beyond anything kind of a, uh, literally, Land of Oz. Right. Um, was it sort of hard to come up with new... Tim's done circuses a few times before, obviously, with Bo and, and Batman and yeah. Big Fish. And 
was it sort of hard to come up with new sort of circus motifs for him? Well, I mean, I hadn't done circus. Oh, yeah, that's so true. Much with Tim, so yeah. I, I mean, I did work on Batman Returns. But I had since um, got involved with a few different sort of circus projects outside of Tim. So I was already kind of aware of things that I was particularly attracted to and wanted to explore. And I, I actually, at that point, understood what the whole thing was, putting a tent up and, mm-hmm. and how it, it's, it's a whole process. And if you look at the the uh, image of the tent on the upper left there, it's um, lopsided. It's kind of, you know, the, the, the idea of the the tent as as both a metaphor for a lofty ideal that you're erecting this thing and also I wanted it to have this sort of slumped and kind of a slightly depressed feel to it as well. <laughs> it's still trying to put on a good show, but there's something very homey about it at right. the same time. So knowing how these things were put together and then being able to adapt the, the shapes that are created from that into um, something which is more sort of metaphorical and feels like what Tim was after. That was the exciting thing for me. Right. Was there any sort of Easter egg that you put in for from the original film that you want people to look out for? Not uh, specifically Easter egg. Okay. There, there are certain... Um, there are for sure things that resonate uh, both with the original animated film when you've seen the film. Yes. So when, um, when you're in the winter quarters, well, I call it the winter quarters because we had more of a winter quarters at one time. The end of the film shows their own version of a kind of a destination circus yes. uh, in Florida. Um, and um, what you'll see in that is there are a number of elements which are very... Uh, much inspired and evocative of the original exploration that they did for the winter quarters in in the 30s. In fact, on the side of the the barn is the shape of an elephant's head carved out and stuck on. One of the things I really wanted to put across, you know, I kept wanting to hammer this idea of the emotional side of the uh, Medici Circus and this the dreamland, the shiny bauble that dreamland was as as opposed to that. Um, so uh, what I was hitting with uh, on top of with that was, and I kept kind of coming back to this in various forms, is a kind of a heart shape to Dumbo because I felt that was the emotional core of our film and I wanted to make sure that that came across. Not to mention it's also resonant with the original animated film. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, I have to ask you a very nerdy question here Absolutely. at the end. Jump right in. Uh, on the Blu-ray of Last Jedi... Ryan talks about how the uh, Red Planet was impar- partially inspired by the original Star Tours and going through the comet in Star Tours. Can you confirm this? Did you rewatch <laughs> that ride film? Uh, that, that is not <laughs> something that I heard directly from Ryan. I have okay. to say. Um, and he never, he never wanted to place a time and a, a time and a place for his inspiration for okay. with me. But he didn't need to. I, I've always thought white and red go together really well. And uh, the v- visceral quality of slicing through the surface of this and having this bloody spray erupt from that was such a wonderful and such an amazing uh, uh, amazing choice that, that he made. Mm-hmm. Uh, he came in with that, that we were able to sort of key off that for the whole rest of that sequence. Why is there so much red in Last Jedi? It, it's... A very strong metaphorical um, image, right. color. <laughs> Obviously, you know it's got mortality, death, um, blood, all of that sort of thing. 
And at the same time, it's a metaphor for life and for just things being on the edge there. So when you see the throne room, for instance, it's kind of presaging a little bit, foreshadowing, if you will, mm-hmm. the, the fight that happens afterwards. It also felt like the right place to put that character, you know, and, and to make that his characteristic environment. Well, thank you so much. It's such a thrill to talk to you. Good thank to you, Rick. Good seeing you. Take care. Look, if we're talking about, you know, Tim Burton's long-time collaborative partners is his work with Danny Elfman. Yeah. And you were lucky enough to get to sit down with him as well at the junket. Why is Weepy Donuts on every Gus Van Sant? <laughs> Actually, it was on every movie for a long time. Oh, okay. We, there was a period where every movie had Weepy Donuts and a final confrontation. <laughs> no matter the movie. Yeah. <laughs> just an in-joke. So now you've just carried it forth with... Yeah, but yeah. then eventually I got a complaint from BMI. He said, you've got to stop doing this. It's driving us crazy. <laughs> You know, every score has got a final confrontation and a Weepy Donut. The Weepy Donut started from To Die For. Okay. And it was just a title we came up with because uh, Joaquin Phoenix is talking to an investigator. And uh, he breaks down and cries. And he talks about, you know, the place where you guys get your donuts. And uh, <laughs> it became Weepy Donuts. And so every movie had, oh, it's the Weepy Donuts scene. <laughs> And then final confrontation was from Batman. I said, eventually there's some conflict in the movie, and that's that the final confrontation. Right. So that even if so two fun. people have an argument in a movie, it's <laughs> the final confrontation. Well, I wanted to ask, you've done a lot of really interesting scores, especially recently with electronics and all these different things. So how did you decide, okay, Dumbo is going to be like big time Danny Elfman sort of classic style? Yeah, I mean, there's no question Dumbo is going to be old school in the construction. of It's a classic movie, and it's also a period movie there's nothing about it that says synthesizers <laughs> you know uh, and uh, so I think that was pretty clear from the get go mm-hmm. and the trick was how to find some way to make it still feel like a fresh score mm-hmm. and then I did want to do these homage moments in the score which I, I felt was very important mm-hmm. yeah I mean uh, you did a, a new sort of elephants on parade and a kind of a Casey Jr. motif and and, and then Baby Mine for, was yes. in there, right. so I didn't have to worry about that one. But Pink Elephants was the one piece I was really fond of from the original. And so when he said, well, we're doing this kind of scene with the dancing elephants, I was like, my first thought was Pink Elephants on Parade. <laughs> and I know Tim doesn't like necessarily doing that. Previously, he's not allowed me to, you know, it's like when we did Batman, the first thing he said is you would never touch the TV thing. When we did Planet of the Apes, because we never touch on the original. When we did Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, he says, never, nothing. This is like we are not ever referring musically to anything there. I got it. So this time around, it's like, Elephants on Parade is a pretty good tune. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, okay, all right. You know, he, he kind of grew into liking it. And then I was a little sneakier with the Casey Jr., because I'd written the whole piece of music and there was no Casey Jr. And then I kind of snuck in at the end and a little bit earlier. But then he added the sequence in the middle. The scene got longer. And I said, this is my moment. <laughs> the tunnel scene. I did a pure Casey Jr. You know, for 16 bars. And, and he said, all right. <laughs> so uh, that I, I was really happy with. Because, you know, I like it when... Uh, and you do have like a classic theme. It goes back to this period musically of stuff that I really like, the mm-hmm. tunes they used to do. 
then. And uh, it was the same with uh, when I just did The Grinch. You know, I really wanted to have a little bit of the original in there. Right. And uh, I just feel like it's correct to do that. Well, what was your relationship with the original Dumbo? I didn't ever see it as a kid. Oh, okay. As a kid, we boycotted the movie if they did an animation at all. I boycotted the theater. So, you know, when Mary Poppins played, nobody I know saw it. It's like we all stayed away, went to another theater. We only wanted monsters, period. Science fiction monsters and some action adventure, but preferably action adventure with monsters. Uh, We were really, all of us, like one... You know, it's like we didn't ever want to see what we called kids' movies. Right. So animations were kids' movies, and we didn't want to see kids' movies. So I went back and I saw it when Tim called me about the movie. And it's odd because I mean, I know I've seen sequences from it. I just never saw it all put together. I knew Dumbo loses his mom, and that's going to make some good, sad music for me. And I'm going to be very happy about that. But musically, it's like, oh, of course I knew Pink Elephant's on Parade. Right. It's like, I don't know quite how I knew it, but it was like definitely part of my musical DNA. Right. Baby Mine, I didn't know as well, but I knew that also I'm, I'm not really going to touch on that one. But Casey Jr. is like, yeah, I know that tune. That's a good tune. Right. <laughs> it's just a good tune. <laughs> and uh, on that basis alone, you know, I got to find a way to get some Casey Jr. in there. Right. Well, how has your relationship with Tim changed over the years? Because you've been working together for... 30? 33, 34. Okay. Um, if they say the 30th for Batman is coming up, yeah, then it's actually got to be 34, closer to 35. Okay. So, I don't know. But it hasn't really changed that okay. much. He's very unpredictable. I never take him for granted in terms of, oh, I know exactly what he's going to like. We don't have musical shorthand, like people think. It's still a process of figuring out what's in his head. And he also has to learn what is it he's really looking for musically out of it. And there's going to be an experimental process of just like trying lots of ideas and like figuring out through listening. When we first see the film together, he'll say almost nothing. Until I have music to play, you know, there's nothing to talk about. Right. And when I'm playing the music, he can go, oh, yeah, that, I might give him two, three, or even four choices to listen to. He'll go, that one's getting into the right area. And it's through that process that I go, all right, I'm starting to figure him out in this movie. So you're not writing, you don't, you're not brought on early, you don't have, have you ever composed music that he plays on set? No. No, okay. Um, it's always later. However, this was a rare exception of when they first got the call, before I went to work that night on a, whatever film I was doing, I had a theme in my head, I got a kind of thing just from talking to Derek Fry, the producer, about it. And I decided to write it down because I've learned years ago, you never let a, an idea go. It's the big fish theory. The ones that get away are your best ideas you ever had. Always. I uh, wrote this theme down. I played it. I made a demo. I stashed it away and I didn't listen to it for another year. Wow. And I pulled it out. I had no idea what I'd done. <laughs> and I was like, you know, that's... And it actually became the main theme to Dumbo. Wow. But that's the first time that's ever <laughs> happened to me. I was there a few years ago, and you were crowned a, a Disney legend. Have you taken this ambassadorship seriously? Have people come up to you that were in that room uh, at D23? I have not yet been able to take advantage of that ambassadorship. <laughs> you know, I suppose if I, 
I haven't been to Disneyland since then. So okay, yeah, did, probably, yeah. It's like I'd get to go, I am an ambassador. <laughs> um, it, it hasn't gotten me upgraded in any plane flights or hotels yet, to my understanding, to my knowledge. But you never know. Right. You know, when you're an ambassador, the diplomatic immunity hasn't protected me from... <laughs> You know, the last couple of bodies I buried out in the Angeles Vista Forest. <laughs> it's just like, I keep going, I'm an ambassador. Did I get immunity for, for this kind of stuff? No. I have to ask you uh, quickly about one, one sort of tall tale, perhaps, about Danny Elfman, which is that you will uh, forego your usual fee if someone will mow your lawn. <laughs> is this, this is no, true? no. This was specifically Sam Raimi. Oh, okay, just Sam Raimi. <laughs> yeah, this was a thing that we had together it was like it it was actually it's more complicated than that okay it was like a bet and if he lost he had to do my hedges and lawn because i knew he did a lot of yard work so um i think mine was i'd have to go in front of a certain office building and and do bare ass like from the street you know at a certain (laughs) time and uh i won Right. And he welched on his deal. He never showed up with the hedge trimmers and the lawnmower. And you haven't worked with him in so long. So. No, I, I worked with him since then. That was okay. way back. Okay, that was way back. Okay. Dark Man or one of those okay. early ones. So don't go digging anywhere, Jim, in the Los Angeles forest oh. because uh, you might find something. Oh, you always ruin my fun. Okay. <laughs> Fine. Speaking of fun, folks, if you, you want to listen to something truly entertaining we are up to is it the second installment or the second installment is out and then the week this is premieres the third part of our brad bird interview is uh gonna be up have you been have you listened to it oh yet, god Jim? yes it's 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 all gold but again i have to keep it away from nancy she's gonna leave you for brad bird i, I get it but again if people are looking for that podcast yes that is the light called the light the fuse mm-hmm. podcast it's all about mission impossible mm-hmm. We have a lot of great episodes, so check it out. Uh, my side of the fence, we got Disney Dish with Lentesto. We got with Looking at Lucasfilm with the amazing Dan Z. We got Marvel Us Disney, which I do that with Aaron Adams. We have I Want That with Michelle Valladolid. And, of course, we have Fine Tuning, which we will be back with folks next week or thereabouts. Uh, on that show, you're going to hear your conversation with Danny DeVito. Yes, including some Hercules stuff. So Ooh, get ready for can't that. Can't wait. Okay, now if you could head over to iTunes and not only rate this show but also put in a nice plug for Light the Fuse, that'd be nice. Uh, likewise, if you want to support what we're doing here, you can subscribe to Bandcamp. We're working on some special, exclusive shows there for folks who subscribe. So I'll look for those. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll be back next week. Be sure to tune in again for another fine episode of Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor.